Hello, fellow CRNAs, and welcome to Rapid Sequence Discussion, a 10 to 15 minute podcast version of Grand Rounds. This is Kia Gilbert, Katie Pisciatello, and Linda Callery. Each month, we will present a topic relevant to rural CRNAs. Today's topic is enhanced recovery after surgery for total knee and hip replacements. So let's start at the beginning. Why is this important? First off, anesthesia is hashtag trending towards enhanced recovery protocols because of improved patient outcomes. Additionally, studies suggest increased patient satisfaction, decreased blood transfusions, decreased risk of nosocomial infections, and more aggressive physical therapy as well as improved bed availability, which could be good or bad for a critical access hospital. So as of January last year, CMS removed total knee arthroplasties from the inpatient only list. This created a lot of significant and unintended consequences that is too lengthy to review in a short podcast, but mainly some insurance companies are requiring surgeons to document the rationale for inpatient status. And partially because of this, the orthopedic surgeons at our facility believe outpatient total joints are the future. Even though, as of last year, only 5% of total knees were done as outpatient. Here's our disclaimer. This is a hard topic to make entertaining, and we don't mean to beat a dead ERAS horse, but we think the information is relevant to our practice, and we hope you do too. Our guest today is Colin, the chief CRNA at a hospital in Southern Oregon. There, he has worked with a surgeon who has developed a successful ERAS protocol for total hip and knee replacements. Using this protocol, patients are discharged the day of surgery. In this episode, we will discuss perioperative management and patient selection criteria. Colin, thanks for joining us. Walk us through your day doing outpatient total joints. Um, One of the important things is we do a lot of multimodal Uh, agents that we get on board before they ever go back to surgery. So our patients all get preoperative Celebrex, preoperative Tylenol, Gabapentin, um, and then depending on their liver and kidney function, they'll get low-dose Toradol as well as Decadron pre-op. Okay, that sounds pretty routine. Yeah, that sounds like what we do for our pre-op meds. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, are you doing blocks with those in pre-op? We typically just do spinals for our hip replacements. For our knees, we've been doing single-shot adductor canals. That, based on the surgeon, sometimes we'll do a catheter placement um, with an infusion. Some, uh, I know, some joint facilities are doing eye packs to cover posterior knee pain. We, at least anecdotally, with my practice, we don't find that we need those because the surgeon is doing his own injection of usually liposomal bupivacaine um, in the posterior portion of the knee capsule. Then, when we go back to the operating room, we typically do a spinal anesthetic. We use short-acting spinals with chloroprocaine. Um, so, which really allows for early mobility after surgery, working with PT as early as possible. Um, but it also accentuates how important the multimodal regimen is because that really takes over at a much sooner point than traditional uh, spinal marcane spinals. Results from clinical trials, according to NYSARA, have shown preservative-free 2-chloroprocaine to be safe, short-acting, and acceptable for outpatient surgery. However, addition of epinephrine is not recommended due to an association with flu-like symptoms and back pain. Onset time is fast, and the duration is around 100 to 120 minutes. And then prior to incision, we make sure that not only antibiotics are in, but also we do uh, transoxemic acid because we do tourniquet-less total knees. 
and then tourniquet-less. tourniquetless. Yeah. So what's your dose for that tourniquet? Uh, our surgeon uses two grams. Um, mm-hmm. I do total joints with other surgeons that use one gram. Oh, two grams. That kind of seems like a lot, especially since I feel like we're just giving one gram. Right, right. No, I agree. I thought so too. Um, I looked up normal dosaging and it, it was very um, variable. So it went anywhere from 10 to 15 mix per kg up to 10 to 20 mix per kg. Um, I did find one very large uh, retrospective non-randomized study mm. that suggested up to 30 milligrams per kilogram. And the results from that showed that the patients had uh, less blood transfusions, reduction length of stay in hospitals, um, with no increased untoward effects such as MIs or PEs. Oh, so two grams would easily fall into that range. Yep. So after tranexamic, what other interventions are you doing intra-op? We're also using magnesium sulfate and uh, fairly low-dose ketamine, usually 0.25 milligrams per kilogram, um, as another adjunct. So those are both uh, one-time bolus doses? One-time bolus doses, yes. Uh, I know some places use more infusions. We tend to use bolus doses. Once the spinal is in, we use a propofol infusion Mm -hmm. for both patient comfort. And sometimes it helps a little bit with controlling our hemodynamics because without a tourniquet, a lot of our bleeding is based on um, what kind of systolic pressure we have during the surgery. So our surgeon looks for us to have uh, our patients around 100 systolic blood pressure. Wow, nice. Regardless of their, um, if they have... A history of hypertension and like a baseline from his point of view regardless of that okay however you know there are times that obviously we have to use our anesthetic judgment and we have a discussion with him and he's reasonable that if they have a higher baseline uh-huh. i'm not comfortable running them below 100 or around 100 i'll have a discussion with him and he deals with a few more mls of blood loss to you know make sure that that patient is safe but mm-hmm. typically we can talk more about patient selection a little bit but ideally they come in with a pretty good control of their hypertension just baseline so that it kind of makes the same day surgery and the same day discharge for their total joints more likely because it's one of those comorbidities we try to control for. Okay. So at the end, once you get to your spinal and a propofol infusion and those other medications, you get towards the end of the procedure and are you giving anything else as you're finishing up? A lot of what we do is front-loaded. We tend to, if their renal function is good, we tend to redose 15 of Toradol at the end. But then post-operatively, I haven't found that our patients receive a lot as far as additional pain medications. Most of the multimodals are already on board. Um, I don't write in my post-op orders for any long-acting narcotic like Dilaudid or morphine. Um, So if they are getting anything, low-dose fentanyl is usually a rescue or breakthrough agent. And then some patients with existing um, anxiety disorders or kind of a baseline tolerance to benzodiazepines. Sometimes I'll do some low-dose Versed to kind of relax them to the point where they're able to go up to the floor and then work with physical therapy and be on their way to discharge. So, What else contributes to a successful same-day discharge? Before they ever come in for the day of surgery, a dry run of these medications, and it allows the surgeon to kind of select for, okay, they have either intolerances to this or they're too sensitive to that, or if mm-hmm you know, they have a frank allergic reaction, all that gets identified before they're ever brought into the hospital for the day of surgery. So that limits kind of the unknown factors that both the surgeon's dealing with and anesthetic-wise that we're dealing with, particularly the the many, like the polypharmacy that we're using with these multimodal medications. Um, so almost never do we have an unknown factor affect a patient's either trajectory through surgery or recovery path afterwards. The most important aspect of outpatient total knees or hips is the patient selection criteria. Considered exclusions should be 
hemoglobin A1c greater than 7.6, solid organ transplant, chronic renal disease stage three or greater. Oops, sorry Katie, but we're gonna speed you up. BMI greater than 40 with additional comorbidity risks identified, cardiopulmonary event in the last year, OSA, tobacco users not willing to utilize nicotine replacement therapy or participate in smoking abstinence, bleeding disorders, chronic opioid consumption, malnutrition, ASA greater than four, ASA three needing a thorough assessment of comorbidities, anemia, hypertension greater than 140 over 90 and on medications, COPD if on regularly scheduled medications, inhalers, special discharge needs including sniff, inpatient rehab, frail, elderly, or little to no support at home, cancer or immunocompromised, positive MRSA on vancomycin, and patients living too far from emergent medical care. So how many patients have you had to admit in your um, time doing same-day total joints? Probably in the two and a half years I've done it. I've only ended up admitting, for the patients I have done the anesthetic for, two, maybe wow. three. That's Very nice. few. Um, but this is a finely tuned joint program that's been developed over a couple of decades, mm -hmm. um, and we're always still evolving it. Typically what we find that ends up admitting people is things that really can't be foreseen, like new onset AFib, mm -hmm. um, once or twice for really poorly controlled postoperative hypertension. A study published earlier this year found similar readmission rates between same day and inpatient total joint procedures. Outpatient readmissions were 6% and inpatient readmissions were 4%. No patient was admitted within 48 hours after surgery in the same day group. These rates are higher than previous studies that report a rate of 2%. The low readmission rates are an effect of the selective patient criteria. Another study found the number one reason for unplanned admissions was urinary retention, followed by OSA, emesis, hypoxia, and pain management. Well, thanks for talking to us, Colin. Well, thanks for having me. Is there anything else you want to add? But I think that selection criteria and proper patient selection and preparation prior to receiving a total joint is really key to having not only someone who's optimized from a physiologic standpoint, but someone who also has the mindset that is going to be able to handle coming in, getting a joint replaced, having reasonable expectations for the recovery process, for discomfort, for working with PT and being active in that, or else it's really difficult to get them home the same day. As best summarized by Vemeyer et al. in the article Facts and Challenges of Outpatient Total Hip and Knee Arthroplasty, outpatient total arthroplasty surgery should not be a goal in itself, but should rather be the result of a successful, already implemented, fast-track program based on the concept, first better, then faster. Only then will it not lead to an increased rate of complications and readmissions. Consequently, several challenges lie ahead focusing on organizational aspects, improving interventions to reduce the risk of organ dysfunction, safety issues, and economic consequences. That concludes this episode of Rapid Sequence Discussion. Thank you to Colin for sharing his ERAS protocol with us, and thanks to those of you who are supporting our podcast. We are three full-time CRNAs doing all of our own recording and editing, and this podcast is for our capstone project. Please fill out the pre and post surveys found in the episode notes. Follow us on Instagram at Rapid Sequence Discussion, and stay tuned for future episodes. Until next time. Hasta la vista, baby. <laughs>